Chapter Thirteen of the Inevitable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlech. The Inevitable by Louis Caporus, translated by Alexander Texiera de Matos. The Inevitable. Chapter Thirteen. It was then, after a few days, that Cornelie conceived the idea of leaving the boarding house and going to live in rooms. The hotel life disturbed her budding thoughts, like the wind of vanity that was constantly blighting very vague and fragile blossoms, and, despite a torrent of abuse from the Marchesa, who reproached her for having engaged to stay the whole winter she moved into the rooms which she had found with duco van der stahl after much hunting and stair climbing they were in the via dia serpenti up any number of stairs a set of two roomy but almost entirely unfinished apartments containing only the absolute essentials and though the view extended far and wide above the housetops of rome to the circular room of the Colosseum, the rooms were rough and uncomfortable bare and uninviting duco had not approved of them and said that they made him shiver although they faced the sun but there was something about the ruggedness of the place that harmonized with cornelie's new mood when they parted that day he thought how inartistic she was and she how unmodern he was they did not meet again for several days and cornelie was very lonely but did not feel her loneliness because she was writing a pamphlet on the social position of divorced women the idea was suggested to her by a few sentences in a tract on the feminist problem and at once without wasting much time in thought she flung off her sentences in a succession of impulses and intuitions rough-hewn cold and clear she wrote in an epistolary style without literary art as though to warn girls against cherishing too many illusions about marriage she had not made her rooms comfortable she sat there high over rome with her view across the housetops to the Colosseum, writing, writing and writing, absorbed in her sorrow, uttering herself in her stubborn sentences, feeling intensely bitter, but pouring the wormwood of her soul in her pamphlet. Mrs. van der Stahl and the girls who came to see her were surprised by her untidy appearance, her rough-looking rooms, with a dying fire in the little grate, and with no flowers, no books, no tea, and no cushions, and, when they went away after fifteen minutes, pleading urgent errands, they looked at each other tripping down the endless stairs, with eyes of amazement, utterly at a loss to understand this transformation of an interesting, elegant little woman, surrounded by an aura of poetry and a tragic past into an independent woman working furiously at the pamphlet full of bitter invective against society 
and when duco looked her up again in a week's time and came to sit with her a little he remained silent stiff and upright in his chair without speaking while cornelie read the beginning of her pamphlet to him he was touched by the glimpses which it revealed to him of personal suffering and experience but he was irritated by a certain discord between that slender lily-like woman with her drooping movements and the surroundings in which she now felt at her ease entirely absorbed in her hatred for the society hague society which had become hostile to her because she refused to go on living with a cad who ill-treated her and while she was reading duco thought she would not write like that if she were not writing it all down from her own suffering why doesn't she make a novel of it why generalize from one's personal sorrows and why that admonishing voice he did not like it he thought the sound of that voice was hard those truths so personal that bitterness unattractive and that hatred of convention so small and when she put a question to him he did not say much nodded his head in vague approval and remained sitting in his stiff uncomfortable attitude he did not know what to answer he was unable to admire he thought her inartistic and yet a great compassion welled up within him when he saw in spite of it all how charming she would be and what charm and womanly dignity would be hers could she find the line of her life and move harmoniously along that line with the music of her own movement he now saw her taking a wrong road a path pointed out to her by the fingers of others and not entered upon from the impulse of her own soul and he felt the deepest pity for her he an artist but above all a dreamer sometimes saw vividly despite his dreaming despite his sometimes all-embracing love of line and color and atmosphere he the artist and dreamer sometimes very clearly saw the emotion looming through the outward actions of his fellow-creatures saw it like light shining through alabaster and he suddenly saw her lost seeking straying seeking she herself knew not what straying she herself knew not through what labyrinth far from her line the line of her life and the course of her soul's journey which she had never yet found she sat before him excitedly she had read her last pages with a flushed face in a resonant voice her whole being in a fever she looked as if she would have liked to fling those bitter pages at the feet of her dutch sisters at the feet of all women he absorbed in his speculation melancholy in his pity for her had scarcely listened nodding his head in vague approval and suddenly she began to speak of herself revealed herself wholly told him her life her existence as a young girl at the hague her education with a view to shining a little and being attractive and pretty with not one serious glance at her future only waiting for a good match with a flirtation here and a little love affair there until she was married a good match in her own circle 
her husband a first lieutenant of hussars, a fine, handsome fellow of a good, distinguished family, with a little money. She had fallen in love with him for his handsome face and his fine figure, which his uniform showed to advantage, and he with her as he might have done with any other girl who had a pretty face. Then came the revelation of those very early days, the discord between their characters manifesting itself luridly at once. She, spoiled at home, dainty, delicate, fastidious, but selfishly fastidious and flying out against any offence to her own spoiled little ego. He no longer the lover, but immediately and brutally the man with rights to this and rights to that, with an oath here and a roar there, she with neither the tact nor the patience to make of their foundering lives what could still be made of them, nervous, quick-tempered, quick to resent coarseness, which made his savagery flare up so violently that he ill-treated her, swore at her, struck her, shook her, and banged her against the wall. The divorce followed. He had not consented at first, content, in spite of all, to have a house and in that house a wife, female to him, the male, and declining to return to the discomfort of life in chambers, until she simply ran away first to her parents, then to friends in the country, protesting loudly against the law, which was so unjust to women. He had yielded at last and allowed himself to be accused of infidelity, which was not beside the truth. She was now free, but stood as it were alone, looked at askant by all her acquaintances, refusing to yield to their conventional demand for that sort of half-mourning which, according to their conventional ideas, should surround a divorced woman and at once returning to her former life, the gay life of an unmarried girl. But she had felt that this could not go on, both because of her acquaintances and because of herself. Her acquaintances looking at her askant, and she loathing her acquaintances, loathing their parties and dinners, until she felt profoundly unhappy, lonely and forlorn, without anything or anybody to cling to, and had felt all the depression that weighs down on the divorced woman. Sometimes, in her heart of hearts, she reflected that, by dint of great patience and great tact, she might have managed that man, but he was not wicked, only coarse, that she was still fond of him, or at least of his handsome face and his sturdy figure. Love, no, it was not love, but had she ever thought of love as she now sometimes pictured it? And did not nearly everybody live more or less so-so, with a good deal of give and take? but this regret she hardly confessed to herself, did not now confess to Duco, and what she did confess was her bitterness, her hatred of her husband, of marriage, of convention, of people, of the world, of all the great generalities, generalizing her own feelings into one great curse against life. He listened to her with pity. He felt that there was something noble in her, which, however, had been stifled from the beginning. 
He forgave her for not being artistic, but he was so sorry that she had never found herself, that she did not know what she was, who she was, what her life should be, or where the line of her life wound, the only path which she ought to tread, as every life follows one path. Oh, how often, if a person would but let herself go, like a flower, like a bird, like a cloud, like a star which so obediently ran its course, she would find her happiness and her life, even as the flower or the birds find them, even as the cloud drifts before the sun, even as the star follows its course through the heavens. But he told her nothing of his thoughts, knowing that, especially in her present mood of bitterness, she would not understand them and could derive no comfort from them, because they would be too vague for her and too far removed from her own manner of thinking. She thought of herself, but imagined that she was thinking of women and girls and their movement towards the future. The lines of women. But had not every woman a line of her own? Only how few of them knew it, their direction, their path, their line of life, their wavering course in the twilight of the future. And perhaps, because they did not know it for themselves, they were now all seeking together a broad path, a main road, along which they would march in troops, in a threatening multitude of women, in regiments of women, with banners and mottoes and war cries, a broad path, paralleled with the movement of the men, until the two paths would melt into one, until the troops of women would mingle with the troops of men, with equal rights and equal fullness of life. He said nothing to her. She noticed his silence and did not see how much was going on within him, how earnestly he was thinking of her, how profoundly he pitied her. She thought that she had bored him, and suddenly, around her, she saw the dim, barren room, saw that the fire was out, and her zeal subsided, her fever cooled, and she thought her pamphlet bad, lacking strength and conviction. What would she not have given for a word from him? But he sat silent, seemed to take no interest, probably did not admire her style of writing, and she felt sad, deserted, lonely, estranged from him, and bitter because of the estrangement. She felt ready to weep, to sob, and strange to say, in her bitterness she thought of him, of her husband, with his handsome face. She could not restrain herself. She wept. Duco came up to her, put his hand on her shoulder, then she felt something of what was going on within him, and that his silence was not due to coldness. She told him that she could not remain alone that evening. She was too wretched, too wretched. He comforted her, said that there was much that was good, much that was true in her pamphlet, that he was not a good judge of these modern questions, that he was never clever except when he talked about Italy, that he felt so little for people and so much for statues, so little for what was newly building for a coming century and so much for what lay in ruins and remained over from earlier centuries. He said it as though apologizing. 
She smiled through her tears, but repeated that she could not stay alone that evening and that she was coming with him to Baloney's, to his mother and sisters. And they went together, they walked round together, and to divert her mind he spoke to her of his own thoughts, told her anecdotes of the Renaissance masters. She did not hear what he said, but his voice was sweet to her ears. There was something so gentle about his indifference to the modern things that interested her. He had so much calmness, healing as a balsam, in the restfulness of his soul, which allowed itself to move along the golden thread of his dreams, as though that thread was the line of his life. So much calmness and gentleness that she grew calmer and gentler and looked up to him with a smile. And, however far removed they might be from each other, he going along a dreamy path, she lost in an obscure maze. They nevertheless felt each other approaching, felt their souls drawing near to each other, while their bodies moved beside each other in the actual street, through Rome, in the evening. He put his arms through hers to guide her steps, and... When they came in sight of Bologna's, she thanked him. She did not know exactly for what. For the look in his eyes, for his voice, for the walk, for the consolation which she felt inexplicably yet clearly radiating from him. And she was glad to have come with him this evening and to feel the distraction of the Bologna table d'hote around her. But at night, alone, alone in her bare rooms, she was overcome by her wretchedness as by the sea of blackness, and, looking out at the Colosseum, which showed faintly as a black arc in the black night, she sobbed until she felt herself sinking to the point of death, derelict, lonely, and forlorn, high up above Rome above the roofs, above the pale lights of Rome by night, under the clouds of the black night, sinking and derelict, as though she were drifting a shipwrecked waif on an ocean which drowned the world and roared its pliance to the inexorable heavens. End of chapter 13